the last line of the obituary, it, it has its own paragraph, and it says, the relationship between the driver and the passenger was not immediately clear. What? And then it just ends. You've got to be kidding. Isn't that strange? Yes, it is strange. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is a podcast about objects and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Oracass. Episode 1, World War II, Welder, Washington. It was a Christmas morning of 2014 in Northern California when I opened a gift from my mother. Other than antiques, my mom's greatest love is gift giving. Every object she gives me has a story. This time, she gave me a grouping of gifts. It was a box full of antique war memorabilia from our World War II collection. In the box, under small 1940s toy soldiers and old photos, was this small, faded, orange book. I looked closer at its cover, and it read, Restricted War Department, Japanese Phrase Book, February 28, 1944. I was not only intrigued by the unique nature of this item, but also that it had clearly been used. A lot. Carefully flipping through the pages, I could see Japanese characters written in pencil on the first and last page, nothing in between. With my knowledge as a linguist, I know that this book was not written for a field linguist, but a soldier. There were only broad transcriptions, like the ones you would find in old dictionaries. It has that musty old book smell. The cover is crumpled and stained. Unlike the cover, these scribbles inside the first page are pristine, Inside the front cover, a name in cursive. Delmer Foreman. I'm going to find who Delmer Foreman was. I also want to know if he ever really did own this book, or was it just some name written by somebody else anonymously? Let's start with the handwriting. There is a pattern. All but one are people's names. And beneath these names are the corresponding Japanese characters. Here are the four things written inside the book with the Japanese characters below. Elmer Foreman, Donna, Nelly, and I Love You. Then there are three other names that are listed in the back of the book. Let's just focus on the ones that have Japanese characters under them. The first, Elmer Foreman. It's the only English surnamed person with a last name written. The other are all first names. Maybe that is because this is Delmer's book. I have the first and last name and a date of the book issue. I plug that information in to a database. The Access to Archival Databases, AAD for short. It has a collection of all enlisted men in World War II from 1938 to 1946. There are over eight and a half million people in this archive. So what I know is number one, a man named Delmer Foreman, and two, that he may have written stuff in this book after February 28th, 1944. I put that information in and I click enter. 
two results. Delmer Charles Foreman and Delmer Everett Foreman. I used the military archives from Ancestry to corroborate the two soldiers' information, but unfortunately they were enlisted early in the 1940s, and one was enlisted in 1939, and the family names did not match with the names in the book. But it could still be one of these Delmers. I wasn't ruling them out just yet. After more digging, I hit an inconclusive wall. I couldn't prove either way if these soldiers owned this book or not, so I gave up the search. Maybe I shouldn't look at the handwriting. What about the publication of this phrasebook? Did that lead me to a place, a name, or a specific time? These questions repeated in my head. I was staring off into space and drifting away from this mystery. If only I had known that I was looking at the answers the whole time. But for now, let's take a break. Okay, we're back. Me, a bright laptop computer screen, and a Japanese phrasebook from 1944, in a dark room. I looked at the book face down, frustrated that I couldn't get any answers. And that was when I saw it. A message. On the waxy print of the back cover is a name, a set of numbers, and an address. How lucky could I have gotten? From that point on, I was determined to find Delmer. This message was essentially an invitation to investigate. Each name is a piece to this very large puzzle. The name on the back was again Delmer Foreman, reassuring that this book was his. Below it reads ASN, then a set of nine numbers, which, due to privacy reasons, I will not share on this podcast. This is his army service number, given to all military personnel who get enlisted, and below that he wrote home, and an address that is unfortunately too faded to read. Now I actually can find him. He has given me all the information I need to discover the truth. I use the AAD records again and just type in his army service number, one number at a time. I press return. One result. Elmer N. Foreman. But one thing was strange. The last name on the report, spelled F-O-R-M-A-N, had no E. Well, at least I found him. His full military report was intriguing. The report lists everything about his military life, from component of the army to marital status. He was an enlisted man and was married by 1945, but his enlistment date, July 14th, 1945. Hmm, that's an interesting date. That's one month and one day before Victory Over Japan Day, and officially the end of World War II. Dummer was enlisted at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, five weeks after the Nazis surrendered and one month before the bombs were dropped on Japan. He was in the middle of two penultimate military decisions in American history. But where does the book fit into all of this? The American military put more efforts into the war on the Pacific after Italy and Germany fell to the Allies. There were many attempts to use cinema and radio as the main pathways of propaganda against the Japanese. To beat the Japanese, and to do the job thoroughly. We have got to understand them thoroughly. The Japanese are not easy to know. This then is the enemy. Primitive, murderous, and fanatical. But let us make no mistake, for total victory, 
we must make total sacrifice. So it does make sense that this book could have been used so late in the war. But what I want to know is, if Delmer really went to Japan, did he clutch this book in Okinawa and write fragments of his personal letters in the margins? Let's take a break from the personal investigation and focus on the object's history. I talked to three historians about this phrasebook, Catherine Morrissey, David Pietz, and Michel Paradis. Here are some excerpts of our email correspondences about the phrasebook. Catherine Morrissey, an associate professor of history at the University of Arizona, Tucson, specializes in cultural and environmental borderlands history. Quote, according to the stories that my father would tell, the phrasebook and other technical manuals had been produced by the military intelligence service, and he, my father, had a hand in some of that production while he was stationed in D.C. End quote. David Pietz, a Chinese history professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson, specializes in Chinese and East Asian environmental history. Quote, the phrasebook was part of the larger U.S. war effort directed against Japan in the Pacific War. In this case, the effort to produce the Japanese phrasebook was probably used to train U.S. military, security, and intelligence personnel for a variety of reasons. To communicate with Japanese POWs, for intelligence personnel to interrogate POWs and other intelligence targets, to produce anti-Japanese propaganda, to interpret slash translate Japanese communications, to prepare for eventual post-war communication purposes, as in occupation, and so on. The need to be able to communicate to the language of your adversary was, and still is, important for a variety of these purposes." End quote. Michel Paradis, the author, lecturer, and human rights lawyer who recently wrote Last Mission to Tokyo, also lectures Law of War at the Columbia Law School. Quote, I can tell you that this was the standard issue phrasebook given to U.S. forces in the Pacific during the most famous island hopping campaign. The small size and orange cover are the giveaway that it was meant to be carried by soldiers managing the occupation of the more far-flung Japanese islands like Okinawa or by marines in the case they were captured. In 1945, a different phrasebook was issued to army forces in occupied Japan, so this would have probably been in a pack or maybe even a back pocket if a soldier was tasked with some civil affairs duty in the final year of the war. It certainly wouldn't be surprising if he was shipped out in July of 1945. The war was raging in the Pacific, and there was still some expectation at that point that there would be a significant occupation of Japan." End quote. I am also starting to read Last Mission to Tokyo by Michel Paradis and would definitely recommend. Back to the finding of the phrasebook's owner, I turned to Ancestry. Their military archives pull from multiple sources, including the records found on the AAD. This time, I had a better chance of finding Delmer Foreman. But I only found the same report, nothing new. Then the leads dried up quickly. No birth records, no marriage certificates, and no obituaries. 
Delmer Foreman only existed in 1945, and this book was the only connection to that timeline. I decided to forget about Delmer and focus on the other names in the phrasebook. Nellie. N-E-L-L-I-E. It was written on the adjacent page to I love you. Could that be his wife? Hours of digging turned into days of grasping at straws. No Nellie Foreman existed who married a Delmer. Another roadblock in the case. The writing was on the walls that something was off in this mystery. But the writing was in the pages. And that's what didn't add up. Why did the military spell his name Foreman, F-O-R-M-A-N, when it is clear that Delmer signed his last name with an E twice, once on his draft registration card, which I found on Ancestry, and the other in this book? I thought, could Delmer have spelled his name wrong? Or was it because the drafting process by 1945 was hurried and the War Department made a mistake? That is the nuclear question. Do you trust an official military report about a person's name or their own personal signature? In this case, it was the latter. The whole time, I chose a path with the wrong name. He was indeed Delmer Foreman with an E. And this new information burst the floodgates open. Days before, Ancestry showed zero results for Delmer Foreman, the one without the E. Now, with that pesky E, I had 47 names. I typed in Kansas as a possible residence. Narrowing further, a wife named Nellie. Then, I could see Delmer Foreman from Kansas, who was married to a Nellie M. Foreman. The real Foreman was here, caught in my virtual net. Here is a summarized timeline of his life through Ancestry. He was born November 11, 1917, to Charles Foreman and Hazel Byerly in Illinois. Horribly, his parents died young and did not live past 37. He was an orphan by 12 and moved in with a family member back in Illinois in the mid-1930s. Then, around 1940, he married Nellie Broadstock, close to 22 years old when she was around 25. They moved together in Wichita, Kansas. That fall of 1940, he signed his draft card for the war but lived his normal life with Nellie until the summer of 1945. Now, this is a section that is missing from the Delmer Foreman with an E timeline because his military name was spelled incorrectly. After the war, he moved to Pasadena, California in 1949. Then in the late 50s, went up to Washington. He remained in Yelm, just outside Olympia, with his wife until the year 2000. He died on March 30th, 2000, and she, Nellie M. Foreman, followed just nine days later on April 8th. This brings me back to the phrasebook. That address on the bottom under his ASN, I remembered the address in Wichita, the one that was on his draft card, the one where he wrote that Nellie was his wife who lived on South Washington Street. It was a match to the address on the back of the phrasebook. His signature on the draft card was also a match. This was his handwriting on two documents for the same war. His obituary records, however, were not that conclusive. His last 30 or so years were in the Washington area, so I decided to find any obituaries related to Yelm, Tacoma, or Olympia. The Tacoma Pierce County Genealogy Society popped up. I contacted a manager, Karen, who replied quickly with encouraging news. She said that she would contact anyone who knows how to find Delmer Foreman's obituary. Two hours go by. An email. This time, it was Gretchen. 
She's a library assistant who works at the Tacoma Public Library. In order to see the obituary she found, I had to pay $7.50. Anything for answers, right? She found two obituaries of Delmer Foreman's from the Olympia area. One died in 1980 and the other died in the year 2000. That's the one. I clicked the screen capped article and read the most horrific obituary headline. Driver killed in one vehicle accident near Olympia. Passenger injured. It describes in detail how Delmer drove off an embankment into a tree, dying almost immediately. The passenger, Nellie M. Foreman, broke some ribs and was in serious condition. But it does not clarify that Nellie was Delmer's wife. Why wouldn't it be? The obituary ends with a confusing cliffhanger. Next, after the break. We're back. I knew that Delmar and Nellie had died. I understood the context of their deaths, but I didn't know who was there to grieve their deaths. Who was still alive to know this story and want to talk about it? Delmar and Nellie had two children, but I knew them as private on Ancestry. That is until I found MyHeritage, a website service designed to group primary, secondary sources and genealogical data into family trees. What MyHeritage has that Ancestry doesn't is more names of family members with current trees. Each person who makes a new account has their first and last name tied to the family tree they are creating. Typing in Delmer Foreman, I saw 50 trees. One had the date 1917. That's Delmer's birth year. I look at children. Two. One is private, and the other, Prater. I look up at the top and see the person who created the page. Donna Prater. I found his daughter. Scouring through white pages, I was able to find Donna Prater, who had lived in the same address as Delmer Foreman. I also found Donna's information on Ancestry, but it wasn't linked to him because she is still alive. I found phone numbers and her most current address. I typed a letter and sent it her way via snail mail. All I could do was wait. I'm in the San Francisco airport and I'm running to a gate. I just make it. The line is shuffling towards the scanner. I check my phone for my boarding pass. A missed call. I click the voicemail. It's from Oklahoma, where Donna lives. I wait to get on the plane. What could she say in that 12-second voicemail? Sitting in my plane seat, heart pounding, I put on my headphones. Phone one connected. This is Donna Prater. Um, regarding your letter. Thank you. It's her. Even in those 12 seconds, I can hear that there was a lot to unpack. I called her two days later. Hello? Hello, Donna. Yes. This is Thatcher. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Okay. So first off, just state your name and why we're talking here now. I'm Donna Foreman Prater, and we're talking because you have a Facebook that apparently belonged to my dad back during World War II. Before I recorded this call, 
Donna said that she knew it was his handwriting on the phrasebook. Donna remembers her mother, Nellie M. Foreman, the Nellie written in the book, writing out checks in Delmer's name because she could copy his signature exactly, and no one at the bank could tell the difference since the signatures were so much alike. Mother used to tell me about how Daddy, I think he caught a bus or something to go to work, and just before he'd leave our yard, he'd take his fingers and act like he's pulling your nose off, you know, put your thumb through your fingers, and then he'd start walking to the bus stop. And Mother said, I used to run after him. Daddy, Daddy, give me my nose back. <laughs> I asked her about Delmer's position in the war and what this phrasebook could have meant to him. I know that he was in the first occupation of Japan, but he wasn't yeah. a fighter. He was like in a maintenance crew. He was okay. a very, very good welder. And that's the yeah. reason that he didn't get into the army earlier. He kept trying and his two brothers were in, but he had a job at Boeing. And the draft board said that that was more important to the case of the war than him going in and fighting. That's why he was in 1945 when he finally got to join. Donna tells me that she doesn't recall him ever writing or speaking in Japanese, but she does have a lot of souvenirs that he brought back from Japan. Daddy brought some souvenirs home with him. I have a yeah. picture of him in Japan and sitting on a log or something or down close to the ground. And there was a couple of Japanese people sitting by him. And then there's a monkey that's going through his hair like it's looking for bugs. <laughs> and I've got a hairy carry knife. These are harakari knives, also called seppuku, which are used in a ritual suicide. So Japanese soldiers could die with honor in their own terms instead of in the enemy's hands. If a Japanese soldier disgraced or betrayed their country, especially in wartime, they would use these short swords and disembowel themselves in the stomach. It is poignantly portrayed in the 2016 film Hacksaw Ridge. And I also have a, I think it I don't remember if it's a letter or a postcard. He wrote on it why he was sending it to me. It went to, to get postmarked at the atoll where they tested the atom bomb. This atoll mentioned is most likely the Bikini Atoll, which is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in the Marshall Islands. Over 20 nuclear bomb tests were done here, destroying the wildlife and removing the indigenous people that lived there. You can find more information about this in the 1988 documentary Radio Bikini. I then asked her what Delmer did after the war. So he ended up with his own welding shop. About four years at the shop. So do you know what, what he welded exactly? Was it planes, ships? Uh, anything. He anything. welded every, oh. everything. Yeah, he picked a little girl's necklace one time, a little tiny silver chain. And he was so good that you could not see where he had got it. Wow. And then at one time on the West Coast, there were only three people who were certified to weld titanium, and he was one of them. He worked night, so in the daytime, you know, he was sleeping. So if the phone rang and, and I answered it, I'd say, Daddy, either working or sleeping. So he was working or sleeping. <laughs> His welding shop had an office, and Donna shared something she remembered seeing there. <laughs> Daddy used to have a sign on the wall that says, we mend everything except broken hearts. He's, he was in welding, except for the first three or four years of their marriage. They saved up their nickels, dimes, and quarters to get enough money for him to go to welding school. 
I came along about five years after they were married. So he okay. was already welding when I was born. I then asked her about Delmer and Nellie. They got married in 1937. I know. They got married in Augusta, Kansas. He was okay. 20 and she was 23. And how did they meet? I really don't know. Oh, yes, I do too know. It was a blind date. My dad was 6'3". My mother yeah. was 4'11". Daddy could stick his arm straight out and she could stand right underneath it. I then asked Donna about Delmer's life in the 1950s. In the 50s. Daddy had joined the Air Force Reserve out in California, and his group got called up to go to Korea. But about two weeks before that, he had had his first really bad gallbladder attack, and that oh, kept wow. him out. And if he had gone, he would have been gone when my brother was born. This is her brother Jim, which we will hear more about later. Horribly, in 1950, Delmer Nelly had a baby boy that only lived one day. After they lost our brother, Daddy wanted a boy really, really, really bad. And so they got pregnant the next year, and Jim came along. Does he have any memories of, of Delmer? Was he kind of more connected to him in a different way? Oh, it would have been completely different. Yeah, since 1950 and forward. And then I got married in 60, so... It was like they raised two only children. So I'm so glad that he didn't have to go to Korea. Do you think that he would have been a very different person if he also fought in Korea or was enlisted in the Korean War? Probably. It kind of yeah. changes people. Later in life, he was very serious. I asked her about some of the missing information about Delmer's upbringing. Well, Daddy's dad died when he was three. My dad's uncle was drunk and fighting with a policeman, and my granddad came walking by and started to cross the street to see what was going on, and the policeman shot him. And he lived, I think, three days. He did surgery, but they couldn't help him. And there was a big mob that formed. They were trying to get the policeman that shot him, but the governor got involved. And I just read in a newspaper article the other day that there were over 600 people in that mob. And a few months later, somebody found him down in Oklahoma with a pipe wrapped around his neck. This is the police officer who shot Delmer's father, Charles Foreman. So somebody got to him. We don't know who. So he didn't have a dad after he turned three. And his mom died when he was 12. So when his dad was killed, they had three kids with the fourth one on the way. So what did Delmer do after both of his parents were no longer... Well, his stepfather raised him. He didn't have to, but he did. So he always had great respect for him. She told me that his mother, Hazel, tried to remarry and lived in horrible conditions after Charles died. We were told by my granddad's uncle that they actually were living in a, a chicken coop. Yeah, they had a pretty rough. Oh, it, Daddy remembers whenever they'd get sandwiches to go to school, all it was was mayonnaise and bread. After they got married, he would not touch mayonnaise. It had to be a miracle flip that mm. he would not eat mayonnaise. <laughs> Donna's current husband, Roger, was very close to Delmer because they both shared professions. My husband cut machine shop, small engine, welding, woodworking. Did he ever share his, his love for welding with Delmer? Oh, oh, yeah. Daddy helped yeah. him a lot. The last 30 years of Delmer's life, after they lived in California, was in Washington State. I asked Donna about their later years. Yeah, they lived out in the Yelma area. They 
lift off private airfield. My dad had his own plane. My brother did too. Yeah. I could just land and go to the hangar and walk in the house. <laughs> Delmer got his pilot's license in the 1960s and loved to fly on his private plane, but his death had nothing to do with a crash in the air. Who knew that it would be something so unthinkable and unexpected? They were killed in a car wreck. Daddy was oh. killed outright, but Mother made it about nine days. Then she died. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The, the headline here for this obituary, it said, Driver killed in one vehicle accident near Olympia, passenger injured. The last line of the obituary, it, it has its own paragraph, and it says, The relationship between the driver and the passenger was not immediately clear. And then it just ends. What? You've got to be kidding. Isn't that strange? Yes, it is strange. We waited to have the funeral because... We knew Mother was so bad off. We were either going to wait until she got better or that they would have it together and it ended up being together. You know, when I saw the Grace Jones, it, it almost felt like a hole had been filled. You know, that something had been missing. Thank you for all the information you've given me. This has been a wonderful call, and I've learned so much about you and Delmer, Nellie. The whole, all the the people that were mentioned in this book now have have a life, have a story. I, of course, would love to send this to you. Would that be okay? Oh, I would love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, just seeing those pages that you copied, I was sitting here crying. <laughs> yeah, that was quite quite a pleasant surprise. A week later, Donna texted me that the package had arrived, so I called her. Hello? Hello, Donna. Yes? So you got the package with the phrase book about a week ago, right? Yes. And what was it like seeing it and touching it kind of in person? You know, I remember seeing it before. My brother does, too. He told me what color it was. We both recognized it. And do you recognize it like in the late 1940s, still in, in Kansas or in the California house? No, when we were in Washington State. So you must have held on to it for quite a while. Yeah, they did. And it's, it's a strange circular thing that it started with Delmer and he had it for a long time. Right. And now it's back with his daughter. Right. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate this. Yeah, when you would ask me about memories about my mother, I couldn't think of any. Then I just start thinking of things, so it triggers some good things. Hmm, yeah, that's that is a good thing. All right, well, I'll keep in touch with everything, and thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Bye bye. All right, bye. So there we have it. A Japanese phrase book used by a soldier in the summer of 1945 is now reunited with his daughter 75 years later. Every object has a story. This was episode one of Object Obscura. If you like what you hear and you want to listen to more, rate and subscribe on all podcast streaming apps. Just click the number of stars. You can write a review because I love feedback and hit that subscribe button. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, and many more. If you want to check out more stuff, go to our website, object-obscura.com. Follow us on Instagram at object.obscura to see all of our pictures of the object and related photos mentioned on today's episode. Follow us on our Object Obscura Facebook page at Object Obscura Podcast or just by typing in Object Obscura. Lastly, send us an email of a cool object story that you want featured in a later episode. It can be an heirloom that has a mysterious story or a scary object that just creeps you out. Send anything to my name, Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R, at objectobscura.com or on the website, Insta, and Facebook. This was an Anchor Distributed Podcast. Produced, created, composed by Thatcher Warwick Hess. Previously played music is Mizuki by Bad Snacks. Logo designed by Thatcher Warwick Hess with the help of Canva.com. Writing by Thatcher Warwick Hess, Shannon Warwick, and Ben Hess. Social media consultant is Porter Warwick Hess. Researcher and fact checker is Thatcher Warwick Hess. Thanks to Perlinger Archive, free sound and epidemic sound. Next episode comes out October 16th in two weeks. New object, new story. Thank you.